Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, December 6th episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen Arate. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter, either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. With me today is Daude Teo, with whom I will be discussing his poem, Thy Kingdom Come, and my poem, Looking Up Polemic. Before we get into that, however, I am going to go over some virtual poetry events taking place during the week of December 7th. On Monday, December 7th, from 8.15 p.m. Amsterdam time, Labyrinth will be hosting their weekly open mic, and you can find out more information and register at labyrinthamsterdam.nl forward slash hash or pound sign events. Again, that's labyrinthamsterdam.nl forward slash hash events. From 7.30 p.m. British time, the Poetry Translation Center and Durham University Center for Poetry and Poetics will be hosting a reading and discussion between Najwan Darwish Atif Alsher and Paul Batchelor, which is hosted by Professor Stephen Regan. You can find out more information and register at poetrytranslation.org forward slash events. Again, that's poetrytranslation.org forward slash events. From 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time, City of Asylum and Vox Populi will be hosting their American Monster Reading featuring Christian Nowlin, Jose Padua, Nikki Allen, and Michael Sims. You can find out more information and register at cityofasylum.org. Again, that's cityofasylum.org. From 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, Frizzy Productions will be hosting his Poets Playground open mic via Instagram Live at poets underscore playground underscore. Again, that's at poets underscore playground underscore. From 8 to 11 p.m. Mountain Time, the Barbed Wired Open Mic Series will be hosting their weekly open mic. You can find out more information and register at bwoms.com. That's bwoms.com. Again, that's bwoms.com. From 7 to 8.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, Los Angeles Poets Society will be hosting their Meditation Monday writing workshop with Alex Petunia. You can find out more information by going to at the Poetic Petunia on Instagram. Again, that's at the Poetic Petunia on Instagram. That's T-H-E-P-O-E-T-I-C-P-E-T-U-N-I-A. Again, that's T-H-E-P-O-E-T-I-C-P-E-T-U-N-I-A. On Tuesday, December 8th, from 6.30 p.m. British time, the Poetry Translation Center will be hosting a translation workshop with Kazakh poet Gunar Salikbe. You can find out more information and register at poetrytranslation.org forward slash events. From 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Urban Word NYC will be hosting their first draft open mic 
for those between the ages of 13 and 23. It's a virtual writing workshop and open mic series facilitated by Roya Marsh. You can get more information and register at urbanwordnyc.org forward slash first draft. Again, that's urbanwordnyc.org forward slash first draft. From 8 to 10.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Alexa Lash and Kiana Major will be hosting their creatively undistanced open mic. You can find out more information by visiting Major Muse on Instagram. Again, that's at Major Muse on Instagram. M-A-J-O-R-M-U-Z-E. Again, that's M-A-J-O-R-M-U-Z-E. On Wednesday, December 9th, from 8.30 p.m. Beirut time, Sidewalk Beirut will be hosting their online open mic. You can find out more information by visiting either Sidewalk underscore Beirut on Instagram or look up Sidewalk Beirut on Facebook. Again, that's either Sidewalk underscore Beirut on Instagram or Sidewalk Beirut on Facebook. From 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, Luya Poetry, the Digital Salad, um, Bolesan Center will be hosting Tula for Typhoon Relief, a poetry jam to fundraise for disaster relief in response to Typhoon Ulysses and Typhoon Raleigh, which recently hit the Philippines. You can find out more information by going to Luyat Poetry on Instagram. Again, that's Luyat Poetry on Instagram. Luyat is spelled L-U-Y-A. On Thursday, December 10th, from 6.30 p.m. British time, the Poetry Translation Center and the Manchester Poetry Library will be hosting a translation workshop with Kazakh poet Tamir Khan Medebek. You can find out more information by going to poetrytranslationcenter.org forward slash events. Again, that's poetrytranslation.org forward slash events. From 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the Rumpus, Barrel House, and Books Are Magic will be hosting an inspiring conversation and readings from Kavek Akbar, Courtney Lamar Charleston, Danielle Evans, Melissa Febos, Christopher Gonzalez, and Megan Stylstra. This will be hosted by Marissa Siegel. You can find out more information by visiting booksaremagic.net. Again, that's booksaremagic.net. From 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Cave Canem Poets and Bowery Poetry will be hosting New Works Black Queer Debuts with Juby Ariola Hetley, Taylor Johnson, and Romero Oriogan. You can find out more information by visiting cavecanempoets.org forward slash calendar. Again, that's cavecanempoets.org forward slash calendar. Cave Canem is spelled C-A-V-E-C-A-N-E-M. Again, that's C-A-V-E-C-A-N-E-M. On Friday, December 11th, from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. British time, Poetry LGBT will be hosting their Speak Your Truth writing workshop. You can find out more information on either Instagram or Facebook at Poetry LGBT. Again, that's on Instagram or Facebook at Poetry LGBT. From 7 to 8.30 p.m. British time, the Poetry Society 
will be hosting the Obsidian Foundation Poetry Showcase featuring Malika Booker, Nakima Hoka, and Teresa Lola, and 10 participants from the Foundation's inaugural retreat. You can find out more information and register at poetrysociety.org.uk forward slash event. Again, that's poetrysociety.org.uk forward slash event. From 8 p.m. Eastern Time, Urban Beat Poets Society will be hosting an open mic and birthday celebration for our past poet guest, El David. You can find out more information at El David EK on Instagram. Again, that's El David EK on Instagram. That's E-L-D-A-V-I-D-E-K. On Saturday, December 12th, from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, the Root Slam will be hosting their virtual writing workshop for Black writers 18 and over. You can find out more information and register at rootslam.org forward slash calendar. Again, that's rootslam.org forward slash calendar. From 6 to 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time, New Women's Space will be hosting their open mic night. You can find out more information and register at newwomenspace.com forward slash events. Again, that's newwomenspace.com forward slash events. From 6 to 8.30 p.m. Arizona time, Equality Arizona and the Virginia G. Piper Writing Center will be hosting this month's Queer Poetry Salon featuring Tommy Pico, Jake Skeets, and Smokey Sumac. You can find out more information and register at equalityarizona.org. Again, that's at equalityarizona.org. From 6 to 8 p.m. Pacific time, Los Angeles Poetry Society will be hosting a themed open mic with a focus on velvet and food. You can find out more information by visiting lapoetsociety.org forward slash events. Again, that's lapoetsociety.org forward slash events. From Sunday, December 13th, from 5 to 7 p.m. British time, Poetry LGBT will be hosting their open mic. You can find out more information, again, on Instagram or Facebook at Poetry LGBT. From 2 p.m. Eastern time, Pure Ink Poetry, whose founder is our past poet guest, Brandon Williamson, will be hosting their video slam. You can find out more information and participate at pureinkpoetry.com. Again, that's at pureinkpoetry.com. From 9 to 11 p.m. Morocco time, Moroccan poets will be hosting their weekly open mic via Instagram Live at Moroccan Poets. Again, that's at Moroccan Poets. From 4 p.m. Arizona time, the Virginia G. Piper Writing Center will be hosting their Piper Writer Studio Showcase, which will feature our past poet guests Oscar Mancinas, Hallie Efron, Sandra Cavallo Miller, Steffi Sin, Carol Chess, and Leah Woodall. You can find out more information and register at piper.asu.edu forward slash classes forward slash showcase. Again, that's piper.asu.edu forward slash classes forward slash showcase. 
And now let us welcome our poet guest of the week, Daude Teo. Hi, Daude. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is going to be awesome. I'm really excited. <laughs> me too. Me too. You brought with you your poem, Thy Kingdom Come. Before we get into that, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. I was originally born in Mozambique, which is one of the lesser known countries in Africa on the East Coast, Southeast, so right above South Africa in a city called Maputo. Um, I was adopted by American parents and moved to Virginia when I was about a little less than a year old. Mm -hmm. Grew up in Virginia, Harrisburg, Virginia, so right nestled in the Shenandoah Valley, which in itself was a, a good experience, and I'm really glad I had it, but it had its trials and tribulations, as I'm sure every um, individual has growing up. Mm -hmm. where they do. And it was a really interesting dynamic. My father was a professor, my mother was a doctor, so always around me there's this nice emphasis on reading and, and educating yourself and understanding and learning and almost any means you can. There's a lot of freedom that came to it. And from there, it just allowed me to explore what I really wanted to explore. I have a very intense, one would say, religious background. Mm -hmm. I went to a private Mennonite school mm -hmm. um, for high school. And yeah, I grew up in the Mennonite church, which was really odd, especially as a, a black African. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it, it really influenced me. And so a lot of my writing and, and, and really thinking and philosophizing has always been focused around God and the church and religion. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really given me a lot in terms of, I suppose, ammunition or things to write about in general and trying to understand my place in the world. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, I did not enjoy school at all. I tried universities, <laughs> multiple two-year community colleges, as well as four-year universities. None of them worked out. I absolutely mm. hated it. Mm. Um, so I just decided to leave and, and see what I could learn on my own, and I fell in love with philosophy. And, and ever since then, I've just been calling myself, I suppose, an amateur philosopher mm. um, and just reading as much as I possibly can and then later getting into just writing philosophy, which transitioned into writing poetry. Oh, wow. um, so yeah, I, I would say my upbringing in general or, or the past 28 years of my life has been, have been something of a unique experience considering where I grew up in a rural town in the South right. and developing through the church, through religion, trying to fight my way out to right. then coming here to where I am in Portland, Oregon mm. and having that wild ride as well. <laughs> um, and then bouncing around out multiple areas. I lived in Iowa. I lived in Tucson, Arizona. It's been a pretty joyful life so far. I can't really have any complaints, and I'm excited to see where I'm, where I'm going. But that's yeah. that's how it's been. Right. It seems like, if nothing else, you've at least seen many different climate zones in the U.S., from Virginia to Iowa to uh, Tucson and to Oregon. They're all pretty different in terms oh, of... Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. So my father is a, a, as an environmental professor. One thing that I'm sort of appreciating a lot more and more is just that fact now of just being able to experience such different weather patterns in these areas and just how people live and how people structure their lives around. I mean, one thing about sort of we see technology as coming and sort of providing us that sucker from nature and its wrath. Mm. But at the same time, there's still a lot of thought that has to go in regardless of where you live into the climate of that area. And I think more and more, especially um, as we 
start learning environmental science, as we start learning ecology and it becomes more taught, I suppose, we're going to have to really pay attention to the differences. And like you said, Tucson is much different than Iowa City, and Iowa City is much different than like Northwestern Virginia, then mm-hmm. Oregon is, Portland, Oregon is much different than all of them. Right. And so it's been, it's been really interesting. And there is a lot of, a lot of me that in certain areas, as I miss snow, especially in Tucson or in Oregon, I miss, I miss thunderstorms, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it's, 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 it's nice. It's, it's, it's good to experience that and seeing the world isn't the same everywhere you go, which is something of course you read about, but to experience it is, is different. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there are things about climate the adjustment that people need to make in order to live in the climate that they do that we don't realize translate into certain cultural or subconscious cultural elements. Like in Arizona, I understood why like Middle Easterners wear long sleeve clothing and because the sun is just so brutal you could actually i was feeling like i was getting burned if i was wearing shorts because i'm from the northeast originally so i had thought oh yeah it's hot i'll just wear shorts that's the logic there right whereas in like a phoenix area you literally feel like you're going to turn into bacon if you do not have shade or have long sleeve clothing on. So it suddenly dawned on me why people living in a similar climate, and I imagine because I haven't really lived in the Middle East myself. So um, I, I, I understood why they would need to wear the clothing that they do. And I was like, wow, this makes so much sense. I mean, like, you could sort of logically intuit a little bit, like people wearing turban especially from desert areas it makes sense because then you don't get sand in your hair or hair covering right but then the long pants thing I never got then you know experiencing Arizona I was like oh my god I get it now (laughs) yeah 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 so much of so much of what we see people wear we just immediately assume it's cultural or it's just like something that's just passed out Mm. but the reality is the climate is one of the most important factors in, in considering how the or- we organisms sort of go about our lives, what we wear, what we eat, even how we interact. And, and I think one of the things that's really, really great about this sort of new green movement, if you will, mm-hmm. or like the, the appreciation we have now for climate is just the fact that it's not only the climate that stands alone on itself, and we, again, follow those weather patterns, but we start seeing the development of people, the development of culture is so focused around the climate of those particular areas the geographical areas and it really adds it it, it takes away a lot of i suppose the negative sort of look on other groups or groups right consider the other just as you were saying in the middle east wearing the clothing that they do is almost necessary Mm -hmm. um in order for protection and and, and most people would if they were to go in those locations and finding that out tucson not much different from from Phoenix. Phoenix has probably more concrete, um, mm. but that's just the, the nature of the city. But yeah, it, it, it really does add that element of understanding when one really investigates the climate and the impact that it has on the day-to-day lives of, of the people who live in it. Right, right. And the architecture as well. It's, it's really having a religious background as you do. You know, I think one of the things that's taught, especially in the 
Christianity and really all the religions of the book is that men are, you know, the utmost, the top of the, you know, uh, pyramid kind of uh, creatures, you know, like God's favor and whatnot. Yet we have to deal with the climate just as any other animal, and we're not outside of nature ourselves, even though obviously we always try to tame nature as if she is or it is tameable, you know. How we interact with nature, especially when we are taught certain philosophies, I think of religions as more philosophies. And I think it's really interesting in how we interact with nature. Of course, your individual personalities play into to it uh, to a large extent at the same time when you have this back of the mind thinking of certain religious principles or certain philosophical principles sometimes you subconsciously cope with your environment in certain ways Uh, no absolutely this is something that i've wrestled with for a very long time it's only been rather recently say in the last five or so years where i've actually sort of looked back and sort of investigated my past in religion, but then again, just sort of the text documents um, and sort of religious ideals in regard to the climate, in regards to the environment and the ecology. And one finds that a lot of what we what we think today, as you said, humans sort of being the pinnacle, the top of the the food chain, sort of this direct descendants of God made from the hands of God, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, I think is a big sort of misreading. Mm. misinterpretation of ancient texts. If we go further back from a lot of these, I should say a lot, but the big monotheistic religions, that is Christianity, Islam, one finds a more pantheistic viewing of the world in a sense. The human being is just another like block in this chain of this ecological structure. And instead of it being a sort of pyramid hierarchical ecology, it's actually a web. Mm. in almost a three-dimensional web and like the human is no no greater or no less than every other creature in a sense every other creature is not i wouldn't say needed to survive because we see animals going extinct all the time and new species is being created but the human is a part player in this and not this sort of i don't know farmer that has to take care of this garden of eden and mm-hmm. i think a lot of it is interestingly enough saying Ideas like the Garden of Eden, I think, are are one of the biggest, especially in Christianity, misread or misinterpreted stories, if you will, because that is directly what humans, in a sense, are said to be in this state of nature Mm. with the whole sort of ecology of the garden. And we're supposed to not just like take care of it, but remain a part of it. Mm. And I don't know whether it's an egotistical thing. Someone could blame it on economic factors as one of the reasons we've had this crazy change of mindset mindset where we've seen ourselves as outliers perhaps just technological improvements like no other animal can have create air conditioning or no mm. other animal could build huge cities and deserts and therefore we must be better than all but i think we're seeing before our eyes the consequences of the thought of humans being above and beyond and it's probably make it to the point where we're really the only blessed species left and we'll look around finally and say what have we done? But yes, I think religion, or at least the institutionalized church, has a large role to play throughout the history of changing the mindsets of people into thinking that they are superior 
to all other biological elements of the world. And it's very unfortunate. Mm. Um, and one of the things that I'm trying to do in a lot of my writing, as I say, and, and trying to investigate and get at is how to sort of, I don't want to say return the human to anything because there's nothing really I feel that we need to return. I always, I always hesitate when people claim we should go back in time or when we look back and say, well, life was better then, we should do that. But sort of reimagine the human and the role of humanity in this great womb of, mm. of Earth. Um, right. I hope I can make headway in that. And there I'm also optimistic about where not just science is going, but thinking is going in general. As slow movers as we are in mass as a species, I think we're starting to get to the point where we realize we can't do this on our own. We can't live on a, a planet of ashes. It's, it, it wouldn't be fun. It wouldn't be enjoyable. And like nature has much to offer if we just learn how to live with it instead of living against it and fighting it. Yeah, I th I think that's uh, that's one of the nuances as well. It's to learn to live with it rather than thinking it's some kind of beast that we have to tame. But because even our language, we sort of pit what we do as man-made and the rest as nature, even though we are of nature. So whatever is man-made is also of nature by extension. And I don't think we will survive, at least most of us, if we were to last long enough to see this planet reduced to, let's say, just a desert. Because I think our interdependence with other species has become more and more evident. How much, you know, we rely on, from the smallest to the largest creatures, how much everybody do their part in sort of making the world turn and making our planet work as it were. And I think other species will have a lot better chances at surviving and living on a desert if we were to, our actions were to turn this planet into just a globe of a large desert. I think we would go before that. So it, it is very important for us to continue to work with our both the global and the um, and the local ecologies for selfish self-centered reasons because we do want to survive you know like <laughs> I, I think part of having a consciousness is realizing oh i exist and i would like to continue to exist and i think <laughs> you know it's both a blessing and a curse in many ways before we completely veer off the purpose of this podcast, um, let me just bring us back to poetry. So from what you were telling us about yourself, you basically started writing poetry once you started writing philosophy, so in your 20s then. Yeah, so poetry for me has always basically been rap music in a sense that that's the first type of poetry I got introduced into or to, right. and so that's the, that's the type of poetry that I've perhaps unconsciously been trying to reconstruct or redo. Mm. Um, so I, I never really thought much of poetry when I was growing up. I was mainly into, say, like, novels and fantasy, etc., in terms of reading and then listening, just, again, rap music, etc. Mm. Never really wanted to write any. I've always sort of looked at poetry as something that is done by people who had more emotional ability or capacities than I did, mm -hmm. which is... It's dumb, but I always thought of myself as somewhat of a robot in that sense. Mm -hmm. 
So trying to find other avenues to express myself, I felt it very, very difficult. I mean, I knew I had all these ideas. I knew I wanted to write something in, in song, and it didn't really hit me until, like you just mentioned, a couple years ago, really three or four, when I did get into philosophy. And here, I was allowed the time to write prose. And throughout writing prose, I decided, why not try some in-sentence rhyme, similar to, say, like an Edgar Allan Poe, if you will. Mm-hmm. I found I really, really enjoyed that. And mm-hmm. so I decided to write a book, which it's unpublished. It hasn't really gone anywhere. It's called, mm-hmm. it's, 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 it has a lot to do with what we were just discussing about nature. But in that book, I tried to include some poetry. Mm-hmm. I never really understood the poetic meter or diabotic meter. I never studied this thing in school. So mm-hmm. the, again, the introduction that I got in poetry was just from the Lupe Fiascos that I'd hear, the Tupac Shakur's, etc. Mm-hmm. So I just, again, reverse doing my own thing and I found through that and especially with the help of my mother because she would always read my prose and then read my prose poetry and say well your poetry is much better than your prose so mm. you should write like this mm. and so eventually I decided to make the switch and try my hand at writing pure poetry mm-hmm. um from there I just found it is a fantastic way to express myself and especially when I'm sort of almost feeling like I'm treading water, you get into those melancholic moments and then it just feels so nice. It's almost just like a, a pouring of emotion onto a page. Right. And then I really wanted to ex- experiment with how I construct my words. For me, words are the most important part of poetry. It almost gets to the point where I say, it could be a bunch of nonsense. It doesn't have to mean anything, but if it sounds good in the minds, and I always associated words having some strange sound every time you click them in your mind and it's just about finding the bars or finding the rhythm of Mm. poetry and i really love stringing words together juxtaposing things that look like they would completely be in contrast with each other i've always found the english language literature pretty fascinating and now with being able to write poetry Mm. i'm truly truly revealing to me the extent or the range at which this language can go Mm. one thing that i i really do wish though sort of as a tangent i wish i knew a second language unfortunately i don't Mm. but that would be that would be great but yeah so poetry has been something that i've picked up really really heavily in the last couple years i mean i just recently wrote a whole small poetry book Mm. it's become something that i'm not ashamed anymore of telling people like hey yeah i'm I'm, I'm a poet more than anything or i'm a poet especially i'm a poet more than a philosopher i Mm. found philosophy just became it's still great it's still beautiful but writing and prose it didn't really give me the musical element that poetry gives mm. and that musical element I find to be much more it speaks a lot more to me going back to what I was saying about the idea of me feeling like I was I didn't have the emotional volume if you will to handle poetry it's one of those things that like, I quickly dismissed after I just started writing it down and I just like dove inwardly in myself enough to pull out all of these suppressed emotions that I've had mm. um a, a lot of it has to do with again the upbringing race, religion, you name it, just like isolation, being a huge introvert, and then finally getting to a place in my 20s, early to mid-20s, where I felt mature enough to be able to talk about it. Mm. And I should say one thing that philosophy did give is a vocabulary, and that vocabulary is so helpful. Yeah, um, yeah. And it, it has as, as well added to that maturity element that allowed my poetry to now come to life or come into being. Right, right. Yeah, I see this vocabulary, as you said, in the poem you sent, Thy Kingdom Come. Why don't you read it for us and then we can talk about it more? Absolutely. Thy Kingdom Come. 
Sirens of misery circle around my grave, stretching for days as stories extolling the virtue of battle. The bell tolls, water uproots itself and swims to where the heat of the world can't whisk it away. Dead trees crawl underground as oblivion comes, but outside, suits slumber on mounds of plastic as their peers continue to prop up their portraits. Slaves of children are fed from the fingers of sheep, and news copies news for fear of upsetting their masters. Smiles rain down from wires whilst black wind is sticking to our esophagi, us poor biology. The restless rake the rewards off the backs of the broken, and learning has collapsed into ledgering, and thoughts fly away without reflection. Yet archaic hymns still praise our position through the bellows of our beautiful abominations. Towers topple over from the weight of misinformation, and hands slither in and out of pockets, pleading for an escape from tomorrow's persecution. But who's to hold our horns when our necks are being tied by our neighbors? And theirs by theirs. Thank you. It's really interesting to see this poem and also hear it being read. When you see it, it looks more like a prose poem because these are all in sentences. At the same time, there is a certain rhythm to it. What struck me when I first read it is just the incredible imagery that you offer throughout. It's, it's an incredibly gorgeous poem from the imagery that the words bring to the mind. When did you write this? This was actually one of the first ones that I did. It was about three years ago, if I can remember. Mm. I know exactly where I was. I was on my bed just laying down late at night and my mind had been running from such a, a long frustrating day at work i just decided that i needed to get some thoughts on a page and again this was before it really went into full-on poetic form in terms of format so that's why it is very prose mm -hmm. um but it was about three years ago mm -hmm. so it was one of my like my earlier earlier poems mm -hmm. it's gorgeous i mean if you continue writing this it's fine i mean i don't i and yeah, the thing about it is because it was before I truly transitioned, Thy Kingdom Come has always has been sort of a, a reference point for me in terms of how do I bring for the musical element to poetry. In a sense, prose has been something just how it looks on a page, something that I've always been attracted to more. And mm. perhaps that's because I still don't know exactly where I want in other form poetry, where I want my line breaks to be or how to punctuate it. And it took me a while to get to the point where I'm satisfied with that. But the way that I write my prose, and as you mentioned, the imagery is there. But I almost wanted to, I've been said multiple times, it's almost sing-songy in its nature. And that's where I really wanted to strike the minds of the reader. Mm -hmm. um, and where the, the words truly reverberate throughout that. And so Thy Kingdom Come was really your first attempt to not only get my anger and aggression at society, out on a page in a short, almost euphemistic, like, snippet. Um, mm. But it's, it's, it's my first attempt to add a type of rhythmic element, a rhythmic structure. I always say I'm trying to find the ride, the wires that, that hide behind the words in everything I, I write. And mm. that space between the words, which seems to me the fabric that holds everything together. Mm. Um, mm. So that way, that kingdom come was really the first true attempt to grasp that element in poetry though I, I do define it as poetry more so than prose and lastly one of the things that i'm constantly struggling against is whether i'm writing my poetry to be spoken mm. or whether i'm writing it to be read and in this by kingdom come i find that it seems better to me when it is spoken 
mm. um, which is one thing that I, I do appreciate about this piece. Mm. Perhaps that's from my love of music, rap music, or I've never been into stand-up or I should say open mics and stand-up poetry much. I never really got a chance to go out there. I tried to emulate my poetry off of epic poem, say Milton, Ovid's Metamorphosis, mm. Virgil's Aeneid, etc. I've always been really attracted to classical, even antiquity, uh, poetry and, and, and literature. I'm trying to resuscitate that, if you will, and mm. modernize it and, and sort of redistribute it to my contemporaries in a way that they'll appreciate it, they'll want more. Not only that, but they'll investigate the root of it. Where did this come from? And from their way, find the beauty of the ancients, if you will. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, because of the emphasis on Western thought, I think that is still going around. I notice how much my own writing, even though I haven't had a, I would say, a classical kind of, uh, or a canonical kind of education, that a lot of the imagery I bring up has roots in Western culture. As I'm writing now, I'm actually trying to incorporate more other cultures because I feel like as much as I enjoy Western classical elements, I also want to bring in the other classical elements of many other cultures that we have at our fingertips being Americans living among so many cultures. I definitely see some of the classical elements in your poem and especially the theological aspects of it, the way that this sort of word painting is painted. You know, there's definitely that in the background. I was wondering, there is that definitely feeling of being fed up with something in this poem. And there's specific mentions of ecology and biology, there, you know, science. And, that, you know, I'm glad you told us a little bit about your background. So it makes sense that you're talking about the environment and it talks about not just the environment, but all of these, you know, corporate interests, all of these things that currently people are protesting against. So I was wondering specifically, I know you said you had a frustrating day at work, but was there something specific that made you decide to write this particular poem? Yeah, there wasn't really a specific point that I can point to. I think it was just the overall state of being where I was, sort of looking at where I wanted to be in life, not really knowing how to get there. Mm. I should I should even say not really knowing where I wanted to be, and then just looking at the world around me, and I've, I've, I've always felt a type of sadness, especially mm. when looking at my contemporary, is being a millennial and, and just going through the years, the last like 10, 15 years that we've had, especially since a lot of us graduating high school, and there's not really much to get excited about in the world. And then just seeing how the course of the greed, corruption, it's revealing itself is becoming much more out in the open. Mm. And looking at sort of, again, people who I'm around seemingly oblivious to the state of, it's not even the state of their own sort of inner workings of their imagination, but the immediate environment. And this is not, not an ecological, but social, political, infrastructural, and just it seems like they didn't really care, mm. and they're just happy continuing in their same cycle, in their same loop, and so I look at myself wondering, is this going to be me as well in five, ten years? Am I just going to give up 
trying to fight whatever I'm trying to fight, this this no-name figure that I've been calling God my whole life, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there was a particular point, but it's really a, a process of a continuous sliding without friction through this manifold of experiences that we go through. And that's just boiled up into this one singular poem where I tried to vent everything, where I tried to place everything on one page. I've always struggled with going at individual humans themselves or going at humans themselves because I don't know whether I should lay the blame on us Hmm. and therefore we have the responsibility and we should get out or whether it's factors outside of us that it's really difficult and it would cause immense suffering trying to get out even though I think it's worth it Mm -hmm. and so every time I I try to attack a a system I find myself having to abstract a little bit higher and higher and higher Mm -hmm. until I get to the whole system in general and that's where thy kingdom come really came about and as you mentioned the religious element the title itself comes from the prayer Mm. your Christian prayer Mm -hmm. and all of it it just seems like each line is speaking to a different facet of society or or of my my own thoughts in which I I, I feel is eroding before my eyes Mm -hmm. and then one of my favorites of this slaves of children are fed from the fingers of sheep Mm. I think it's an interesting line because I'm trying to even up to this day I'm trying to figure out do the slaves themselves have are they the ones who have the children or is is it the sheep i i I don't know i i I find that line because it can be the children of the slaves or the children have the slaves Mm. either way you look at it it's devastating but it just it seems that it it captures in my mind the image of at least western society and just we don't really know how unaware we are we have all of, all of these escapes. Mm. We don't really know the predicament that we're in. We want to fight, but we can't fight. We want to change things, but we can't change. And that's, again, at the very end of the poem, who's to hold our horns when our necks are being tied by, by our neighbors? Is mm. I think it just like brings everything to a final crescendo where it's that image of like our own friends, our own persons, our own communities are the ones that are actually perpetuating the this sort of, I don't know, this sort of oppression, this sort of constant burden of life when life shouldn't be a burden. Mm. Um, life should be an exploration. So yeah, it's, there's still so many elements of this that I haven't, I haven't really come to any conclusions of, but I always go back to Thy Kingdom Come, especially even today when I'm writing. I always go back to this piece and again, use it as a reference, and use it as a jumping off point Mm-hmm. I want to say this is really the this, this start of my pure, like my poetic journey. Mm-hmm. And it's always been a, a standout piece of mine. But yeah, it's, it's a bad battle. Like every, everything in life seems to me just like a battle for, for liberation, one end or the other. And every line in that piece, somebody's fighting somebody for liberation. It's just a matter of trying to figure out who and why mm-hmm. and what is needed for that. Yeah, especially the way you ended, there is um, a strong element of interdependence. And because of that interdependence, whether it was within our own species or with the outside world, it makes for a lot of frustration because when you as one person or I as one person want to go 
to a completely different direction, we find that our need for social acceptance or even just community brings us back a little bit, you know, just ties us down a little bit. Because we are, as human beings, social creatures. We don't do very well alone as this physical distancing has shown, you know, no matter what, we need some contact, even if it's just psychological, you know, speaking with someone, not even if it's not physical. Still, there is that frustration of not being able to break out of that, right? The interdependence of it. At the same time, knowing that we're interdependent on each other, I think, hopefully make us a little bit more tolerant of each other and a little bit more forgiving in some ways to an acceptable, reasonable degree, of course. So it it is definitely a struggle. And as you said, all these different facets of life that we as modern human beings, or at least as American modern human beings, both enjoy this modernity as well as is kept prisoner of this modernity so there is a lot of that there's definitely an element so one of the things that i I find interesting too about this piece is it seems almost too there's a hidden element perhaps it's it's larger than i see currently but there's a hidden element of frustration from my part and it's almost one of the reasons i name it thy kingdom come is i'm looking at the world and saying you kind of get what you deserve. So all of these things that are occurring, it's 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 a call to arms. It's a call of awareness, but it's also just I'm taking this time to, to step back, to get into these clouds, or to bury and burn my head in the sand. In a sense, to go back again to a religious element, being a type of conscious pilot and wiping my hands clean of my contemporaries and saying, mm-hmm. okay, you created this mess. You guys are going to suffer the consequences. And there's always that part of me that thinks, the consequences should be as severe as nature will allow in order to get our minds say out of this out of the gutter to get ourselves out of this abyss that we've put ourselves in so there is that element this sort of vicious attacking of or not even like attack but critique of culture to the point where it's almost that desire to see a crash and burn because i know once the phoenix dies arising will be a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful bird. So there is that element. I hope that in reading this, you do see the frustration on my end, and you do sort of take that, I don't know if you want to say, high horse approach, where you just, as terrible as it sounds, looking down on the world, and and, and like I said, we look for escape and we yearn for escape. Poetry is a type of escape for me, and by right or by wrong, I use it to to judge. So there is that element, which is hidden, but there. Yeah, and I think part of philosophy is judging. It's judging what is best from, you know, whoever, the writer's point of view, and trying to make that apply to as many people as possible. Not always successful, because we are one point of view. We do, no matter how, why we try to look, we are still using one, our personal point of view. But yes, absolutely. I'm similar to you in terms of, you know, a lot of strong emotion drive my poetry, even though my poetry also contain a lot of scientific elements to it, as yours does as well, like observational elements. 
So the, the element of a judgment, I think this is what we do as poets. We are judging whether or not we're judging our own little situation or we are judging the overall situation that in a way confines us to where we are as individuals. So I personally don't have any problems with poetry that is judgy <laughs> and feeling like ranting about wanting something better, ranting about all the ills that we see in the world because part of both poetry and philosophy is to point out these ills and to, if not address it with any kind of tangible solution, but at least to help us understand it and also in turn help others understand it. And I think these are some of the elements that I found similar between your poem and my poem, and that's why I sent you the ones I did. And, and so I'm going to read that, and then we can talk about it, and we can talk about some of the similarities and differences. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So my poem is called Looking Up Polemic. Don't rock the boat is a reasonable and understandable command for those in sturdy ships traveling in calm waters who refuse to pick up binoculars to set their gaze upon the oncoming storm that's already thrashing rickety rafts at its front, or those who see but sigh a relief for the distance seeming unbridgeable between disaster and safety. As long as we safeguard our own is rational in rationalizing the delusion that we are not traveling on the same waters, that undercurrents will calm down if we just prayed hard to the heavens. That our vessel is large, stable, secure enough just for us, just for us. Forgetting its erosion by the salted waves, never looking beyond the deck at the vast abyss licking to devour all around in watery darkness, to the nymphal aqua green azure, to the invisible ripples on the Higgs bosom web, weaving our fate into its transparent network with the loom of time shuttling the turbulence from one space to another, spiteful of our thoughts and prayers. Mm, I really like that. I really, really do enjoy that. Thank you. So a lot of what you've written, I've had many of these thoughts. I find that there, in this piece, there is a type of investigation, if you will, into the general, I don't want to say collective nature of humankind, but almost like tribalistic nature of humankind that I think is really, really, it speaks really, really well to what we're seeing today, especially with all the, the social movements and the social injustices that are, are coming to life and how we're so quick to just get in our small pockets, our, our echo chambers, mm. um, whether that be by, by choice or just algorithms or accident. Mm. Um, and we're, we feel safe and we feel secure in those, as you started out, don't rock the boats, don't disturb what's going on, else we might have to struggle, else we might... One thing that I find in the first two stanzas specifically, it's almost a very hard social critique at those elements. We're all in this together, guys, as we were talking about when discussing the environments and the ecology. We're all in this together socially. 
Yet the, the, the last stanza, it, it almost seems like you're creating a type of indifference in which you, you say, we're all in this together, but at the end of the day, time is going to pass regardless. So there's no reason to not come as one singular legion, if you will, and fight the system that way. One of the questions that I had for you mm -hmm. was, in a sense, when you were writing this, was there one specific group that you were thinking about? Because, again, in the first stance, it almost seems like you can almost say the, the oppressors are the ones saying, don't rock the boat. And then it just goes back to the oppressed versus the oppressor dichotomy, if you will, Blair, back and forth. Was there one specific element of society that you're writing about when you created Looking Up Polemic? Actually, I wasn't thinking about the so-called oppressors. I was thinking of the people who claim to be liberal-minded, let's say, but are privileged enough to not do anything because okay. they are not being affected immediately by the chaos that is going on in the world because they can afford to say, oh, hey, the storm is far away, it's far off, it doesn't really concern me, uh, not immediately. I would do the rah-rah, I would do my, you know, couch protest, I would do my sign the petition, but in my everyday action, I'm not going to do any more because it's not immediately in my mind because I'm not being affected directly. So it's more to look at, these are the people that I find more frustrations with because looking back at it now, because this is, this is a poem from about a year ago. Before this pandemic hit, before any hint of a pandemic, I was already feeling like, you know, we are being consumed by this chaos a little bit by little bit. In fact, I started feeling this years ago. So I've been writing sort of similar poems, but this particular one I wanted to address to that segment of the population where they are, yes, sympathetic, and they do try to help in the comfort of their own couches or whatnot, but they are not galvanized to the extent of the people who are being immediately affected. And the last stanza is really about how time, like a loom shuttle, will be bringing this chaos to the rest of the people who are not feeling its immediate effects right now. And that's why I set this on an ocean, because an ocean or a body of water is one of those that's, to my mind when I was writing it, the most similar to how you can have something calm on one side of the ocean, and on the other side there is a storm brewing, and we somehow think, oh yeah, it's not going to affect us, but it's the same body of water, and some at some point it's going to come to our shores. So this is an element that I enjoy using, the water element. I find that I write about water a lot for reasons unknown to me, maybe because, you know, the sea level rise or whatever it is. And that's what I was talking about, the loom of time and also the shuttle bringing sort of this mess to our doorsteps. I was trying to say, because I'm someone who believed that 
while we still have the time, especially for those people who was still in a more comfortable position, I said, we need to make change while we still have the comforts available to us. Because if we are trying to make change in the middle of chaos, what we do is we don't reach for the best solution. We reach for the immediate solution. And those do not do well. They tend to perpetuate a toxic system. So even though those are not some of the elements in this particular poem, but that's basically the background. And I have written poems about that as well. I'm actually very much against revolutions because revolutions to me is something you do when you become absolutely desperate and you don't see any constructive way out of a system. And the only thing you, you think to make things better is to absolutely break the system. And by doing that, we kind of, uh, you know, talking about another water element, throw baby uh, away with the uh, bathwater. And we don't want to do that because we, as society, we construct structures for a reason. They are not perfect, but they tend to help us address the most elemental needs of as many people as possible, provided that we safeguard those structures, provided we are always conscious of being fair, treating people with equality, trying to level the playing field and not let our individual desires for more, our individual greed to tip the system to a point where revolution becomes the necessary or what people see as the only step forward. So that's, it's, it's kind of a warning as your poem to me is a warning as well. Obviously, our conclusions are somewhat different because you talk about this apocalyptic aspect to it, about how we're basically killing each other at the end of the poem. I'm also saying a more apocalyptic warning to the people I'm talking to, to the audience I'm trying to address, the poem is trying to address, and to say, you still have the time, do what's necessary, make yourself slightly uncomfortable now so that you are not suffering in the future, because we're all going to suffer, and, you know, of course, now it's the pandemic, and, and, and I think now more people see the more immediacy of the suffering and with what's going on uh, that drove the even more uh, strengthening the Black Lives Movement, the tragedies. And I think people see more and more and, and, and also the violence, the systematic violence the government get, is visiting onto the American people as a whole, you know, just the way that the protesters have been dealt with, you know, sending unmarked vans, you know, to take away protesters as if we were already living in some kind of Stalinistic dystopia. It's, you know, like from last year to this year is not a long time for that to take place. And I wished as, you know, this poem, I hope is apparent that, that we had those people who were more comfortable, had more lax in their stress, would have taken on this discomfort and would have fought then.
because I don't think we would have found ourselves in the situation we are finding us ourselves now if they yeah. did that. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very interesting. I've always wondered sort of the role of a poet or the role of any artist in general when times are air quote good mm -hmm. and like how we're supposed to express sort of the looming or almost inevitable disorder that's coming down the line because every time you go through say periods of prosperity there's almost this unconscious recognition that something is off and something needs to be changed but because we can't see it we're, we're much less likely to take actions for it and then here is where poets and poems such as as, as looking up a polemic come into being because we're supposed to be the ones who destabilize this stability and we sort of bring fear and we through urging and through almost attempting to motivate people to to go out into the world and or investigate the clock that seemingly isn't broken but is ticking up a millisecond later which is going to come and bite them in the backside eventually mm. um and yet because we do that that as artists that here i don't want to make a generalized statement but because artists are prone to do that they are made that pariah. And a lot of what they do say just gets hidden or just gets pushed away or dismissed. And it becomes that sort of frustration when trying to write something, using that intuition, pleading, if you will, or telling people to take a moment to look at your place. And one thing that came to me when I was reading this is I'm seeing a lot of signs going to today's political movements. Silence is violence. Mm. And I think that I wish that would have happened a lot earlier yeah. in our society where we can recognize how detrimental to change, uh, positive change, if you will, silence is. And I think this poem speaks exactly to it. I love the third to last line where you say, shuttling the turbulence from one space to another, spiteful of our thoughts and prayers. I think one beautiful thing about water or any sort of aquatic element in poetry is water comes with this mystical innocence, if you will, and this ability to care, it, like water cares less how a thing holds it, or like what holds the water. The water can move and shape to whatever it needs to be. Mm. And in that way, like it, the innocence allows for it to be that cleansing element of this beautiful, magnificent world. And it can be both calm, wonderful, but it can also be violent. Mm -hmm. um, and it does not care what happens to it. I find myself attracted to water or using water in my poetry as well too. Mm. Just by that, I absolutely think this, a piece like this is extremely important in just getting, getting that understanding of it. Just as I say, it's better to look for a new job when you have a job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's better to change when things are running as they should. Yeah. You definitely don't want to be seeking change and with the mindset of desperation because you tend to give up way too much, I feel like, when you're coming to the bargaining table in desperation. So it would have been, uh, I really wish, you know, but we can't, unfortunately, we can't turn back time. So <laughs> we can only go forward from where we are you know, even though obviously with, with a podcast like this, we can we can discuss poetry from a year ago or three years ago as yours is. 
and think about how coulda, woulda, you know, what, what not. And I think not just artists. I don't think artists need to take up this burden. I think there are artists who do, like you and I, write in this style, but there are artists who do not, and they prefer to write pretty pieces about sweet nothings. And, and I, I actually do that as well sometimes. But um, I think it's it's up to the artist, up to the person, really, to take up whatever mantle they feel like it's speaking to them, because then you, they can use their authentic voice. Because I think we need to have genuine voice to to convince people. And if we just do it because oh, other poets, other artists are doing this too, you know, like sort of get on bandwagon and whatnot then it doesn't work as well and the passions are disingenuous and I think people can sense it. So for me, I don't necessarily say every artist has that responsibility nor should take up that responsibility. Uh, I think it's what each person feels and of course it goes far beyond artists, politicians, uh, journalists, people from... uh, all walks of life, if they feel so called by this need to shout from their own whatever, you know, quote unquote rooftops to let us know the things that need to be changed, that need to be addressed today, that we still have the capacity, the, the comfort, the, again, the lacks in the stress levels to address them, we should address them now rather than wait for when we're absolutely under threat. And, you know, you would think as human beings, as much as we tout ourselves as such magnificent creatures, you know, God's favor and whatnot, you think we would be a little bit more forward-looking than the other species that we think of as lowly when they're just looking at, you know, getting through the day, trying to get enough food to not stay, you know, not hungry and whatnot. But I feel like most of us are actually just that. We're just like any other species. We care about the immediate, anything further off. We don't have the time to look at and we don't assign, we don't actually save time to go look at. And, and that's, I think that's very detrimental to our future. I think Earth will go on and we will be like dinosaurs, basically. We will go extinct and it might not be such a bad thing for the continuance of this planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Either that or we'll just be able to build spaceships and have people like Elon Musk start a a colony in in space. I have a a question for you after I say this. I've always, in a sense, struggled with... I shouldn't say struggled with the idea, but but from what you said, it's very similar to me how, say, like a a person would make the case for preemptive strike and war in a sense like we have to we have to get to them first before they can get to us i but that being said i very much so agree and i wish people would take on that mindset the thing the question that i have for you is in a sense how do you reconcile when you're saying and i'm, I'm in your camp as an individual we should have the liberty especially as artists we should have the liberty to be able to engage in whatever art we seem fit or whatever art best fits us. I don't think any artist or anybody in general should be coerced into creating, say, something that they don't, as you mentioned, feel is authentic to them, in which case it would just become propaganda. Mm -hmm. And the question I have for you is sort of expanding that from 
just artists to say the general population of, of people. We could say the individuals have should have the liberty to engage in whatever they feel is best for them. How then do we, or even yourself as a poet in writing a piece, like looking up polemic, find sort of the justification to steer them into the direction of mobilizing for themselves at the end of the day? Because it is theoretically changing while things are good because you see 10, 15 years down the road is going to be beneficial to you, even if it's not in the immediate. Is sort of that the only thing we can come to the table with as artists or as people who do say, listen, change now for the better tomorrow, is all we can really come to is just, well, we'll hope this will play out while still trying to allow them the freedom to not change, if that makes sense. I think we cannot make people do what they do not want to do. I think that's something that we need to remember because I'm not interested in becoming a despot. I'm not interested in forcing people to do what I want because I think that's the best because that is the egotism that drives despots. And I I like democracy, you know, in the idealized form. I just wish we would actually bring it into reality, which we don't have. We never had real democracy, even as it's been envisioned by the, you know, so-called founding fathers of this country. I think that is the balance we need to keep is that, or at least in this role that I have as somebody who writes something to put ideas in somebody's mind within their earshot and trust the words will do their job, marinate within people's minds. And if enough people talk about it, that they themselves will find a solution that works for them. Because we cannot say from our own point of view that my, I cannot say my solution works for another person. Even you with whom we agree seems like um, many things. At the same time, uh, just going back to your example of preemptive strike, I'm not a fan, I'm not a proponent of preemptive strikes at all because I don't think that is the same as trying to deal with problems that's existing that may not affect uh, one person as strongly as another. The problems exist already when we're trying to solve something while we're still in comfort. The probability of the problem becoming worse is what we're trying to stem. Whereas preemptive strikes is to cause problems. Preemptive strikes, I think, is more based on paranoia of somebody's threat level. I think because war is such a devastation and brings about such chaos, I do not believe in preemptive strikes. I think we need to do as much as possible to peacefully resolve our differences, including just leaving those others we disagree with in isolation or just ignoring them. I mean, that that is one option. So I see them as different. I'm happy to continue this discussion with you. At the same time, unfortunately, we're running very long on this interview. So just to conclude here, can you please tell us if you have any favorite virtual reading venues that you go to and how we can follow you in terms of your social media or website or whatnot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I'm still looking around really for virtual meetings. It, it take, it's taking me a long time to transition into the virtual realm from what COVID has done. So I, I'm still trying to find one that I feel or that I attend regularly and comfortably. So as of that, no such yet. As far as social media, I've never been an active user, but I do have a Twitter. And the Twitter handle is at DaudeTeel. That's at D-A-U-D-E-T-E-E-L. I should really make more means for contact. It's just networking and social media has never been my strongest seat, but I'll, I'll, I'll improve on it. But Twitter and, and is the main one you can find me on. Yeah, no, that's cool. I think it's fine. Again, it's like whatever is comfortable for you and don't feel like you have to just because everybody else is doing it. So thank you yeah. very much for your time. I really appreciate us having the chance to discuss both our poem and also our outlook on life. No, thank you. This has been excellent. This has been a great opportunity. You're a wonderful host, a wonderful interviewer. And I'm, I'm, I'm just blessed to be able to have a conversation with you in this manner. So I, I very much appreciate it. Thank you. As always, you can find us at poetsandmuses.com as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a safe and healthy week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.